Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, Sacred Stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me on the program this week is Ed Rooksby. Ed and I are going to talk about structural reforms and the recent wave of socialist governments. This is an ongoing theme, the Dead Pundit Society, that all of you will be very familiar with. We're talking about socialist strategy and some of the controversies around reform versus revolution. We'll be talking about non-reformist reforms and all the rest of it. Ed, how you doing? Thanks for joining us on the Dead Planet Society. Hi, hi, Adam. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm glad to connect with you. You are uh, just a little bio here, but just to introduce you to the people. Uh, you are yeah. a tutor in politics and social sciences at Ruskin College in Oxford. You're also the program coordinator for social and political studies. Uh, busy yeah. man over there. Yeah, 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 very. Yeah, so um, we've just come out of... Uh, Two and a half week um, strike uh, as part of the university college union. Um, so just back to work today, actually. So it's all been pretty mad. It's, but, it's uh, always crazy yeah. getting back to work after a strike. Um, somewhat yeah. refreshing, somewhat horrifying as well. So just for the listeners out there, um, you know, you yourself have been directly a part of the recent strike wave that has mm-hmm. hit uh, much of the world, I would say, in academia and, and, and just in uh, education in general. Um, part of the university and college union over there in the UK. Uh, for those uh, folks who don't know, tell us a little bit about the stakes of that strike action and uh, and how yeah. it went down. Well, um, it's been the biggest. Uh, it's much to everyone's surprise, the biggest um, strike in higher education in Britain in modern times. Uh, so basically, the kind of the, the immediate. Um, reasons for the strike was to defend our pensions. So uh, UK, who are universities, UK, the kind of employers um, body, uh, basically trying to uh, financialise our pensions, which we say will mean the average um, member of this pension will, will lose about £10,000 a year, uh, or between about 20 and 40% over the, the course of their retirement. Um, and it's, it was just kind of like the last straw. Um, and we felt that, I mean, for, um, from, for, for one reason, it, it feels like we're at the sharp end of, uh, a wider offensive. So we felt like defending our pensions right. was also a way of defending, uh, pensions across the public sector because after us, they come for other people. So that's one thing, but also, um, what's happened is a, a really unprecedented, uh, degree of energy and mobilization. No one was expecting it. Lots of people on picket lines uh, day after day, lots of students supporting us, lots of student occupations, uh, a real sense of radicalization amongst uh, academic staff are not always noted for their you know, radical politics. Um, and uh, really, I think what was happening was that the strike was, um, it wasn't really just about pensions. It was about a whole lot more. You know, it was about resisting the relentless 
neoliberal marketization of the university over the past few years i think just people kind of snapped and had enough and um, right right that was that they'd had yeah. enough and there was a real team effort now as folks can tell as i've introduced you from uh, britain and, and and folks will undoubtedly know uh, notice from your accent it'll be a little different from mine for sure uh, you're going to have to do some translation for the United States audience I have over here. You, 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 what's sure. this word? Uh, uh, pension? Pen, uh, is, am, I, am I pronouncing that right? Is that pension? Is that uh, French? Or, <laughs> uh, we're not familiar with that word. Pension, we're not yeah. word, uh, familiar with that word over here in the United okay. States. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we haven't had those uh, across the board in so long. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I know. Well, it's soon gonna it's soon gonna be a thing of the past here as well, unless we fight to defend them. Yeah, yeah. So, so you guys yeah. are, are are certainly trying to stave off the worst impacts of what we over here in the United States and uh, you know the neoliberal capital of the world have been suffering under for some time. So yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Godspeed is all I can say. Thank because, you. Because uh, hey, we're we're, we're on a, an accelerated timeline uh, into the hellscape of neoliberalism, and and you don't want to be here. <laughs> we're not far behind you. Okay. <laughs> Not far behind. That's right. That's right. So uh, tell us a little bit about the resolution of this strike action. It seems to have had a little bit mixed results. I mean, that that's always the case, right? When, when these strikes. Yeah, well, it's, it's still ongoing, actually. Yeah. So um, what the union did was they balloted us on uh, a period, I think it's six months, in which strike action can take place at any time. So that was pretty canny of them. Uh, and so we've ended the first wave of those strikes, but we've got new ones coming up. Uh, they haven't announced the dates yet, but they're probably going to be about April, May to coincide with um, students' um, exams. Um, not to attack students themselves, of course, but to kind of cause maximum disruption to the universities and put pressure on them. We, we hope we don't have to go on strike, but we're, you know, if you're in a strike, you've got to, you, you know, you can't go halfway. You've got to be all in. So we're, we're um, trying to keep the pressure up on, on the employers. Um, and, I mean, the, the really remarkable thing about what happened over the past few days is that uh, our union looked on the verge of capitulating uh, on uh, last week. They, they came up with a deal. They announced it um, out of the blue um, and invited branch union reps to a meeting in London. And I think it, it, it kind of felt like uh, they, they had a done deal. And uh, when the, um, the terms of this deal were publicized on Monday night, it, it looked really bad. Uh, there's a lot of anger about it amongst uh, lecturers on Twitter and social media. And there was basically a revolt against the leadership. And um, people just forced our leadership to back down. And uh, they wanted to accept these proposals, um, but we uh, we forced them not to. So um, the, uh, the UCU and UKR thinking about going back to the negotiating table. So it's not resolved, um, but we feel, the union side, we feel that we've uh, got the momentum, we've got the upper hand, uh, and that the employers are divided. Um, they've been pretty shocked, I think, by the level of mobilisation. I think their game plan was to try to turn students yeah. against lecturers, right. you know, the usual divide and rule, and they just haven't managed to do that yet. Uh, but they still... You know they're still working at it, but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's not been resolved at all. It's still ongoing, but I think generally unions, certainly people I know, feel pretty upbeat still about it. That's fantastic. I was part of a strike myself, an academic strike in uh, York University in Toronto three years ago. QP thirty nine oh three. Shout out. QP uh, is on strike again as we speak, back on the picket lines, trying to resolve some of the things that uh, were obviously not resolved in the last round of bargaining. 
I'm no longer there, but solidarity to my colleagues and comrades out there. They're fighting the good fight alongside UCU, kind of uh, on the cutting edge of fighting uh, some of these, uh, you know, cuts and, on, and uh, austerity waves that we've been suffering under for over a decade. But uh, we experienced a similar dynamic where the leadership uh, would try to force a capitulation down the throats of the broader membership. And there was something of a, of a democratic coup, you might say, if that's yeah. possible, uh, yeah. <laughs> of the leadership was uh, sort of overthrown using some, some really uh, important rank and file uh, democratic procedures that were in place, which I might add are not, are not in place in, in, in many unions today. Mm. Uh, which is why this sort of rank and file militancy is so important so that you have those capacities to challenge your leadership should they uh, capitulate, you know, at, at, at Absolutely. the 11th hour. Yeah, and it feels great, doesn't it? I mean, it does. Well, the day after we'd overthrown this um, attempted deal, there was such a sense of, uh, of energy. And it kind, of, it kind of felt like the strike was really being driven by, from below and that the, the, the leadership were kind of running to catch up. And that's, it's really empowering to feel like we've got a democratic union, you know, that just the branches and the grassroots strikes committee, strike committees, uh, that are really driving it forward. It's not the, um, it's not the, uh, the, the, the bureaucracy at the top, which is great. Right. It's a sign of things to come over here in the United States. The West Virginia teachers uh, had a very similar grassroots led, uh, strike uh, statewide that shut down uh, the entire state's uh, you know public education system. Uh, it was a in, in in many senses it was a, I mean it was a wildcat. Uh, it was one that was unlawful, uh, not illegal. That's a very key distinction. There It was an unlawful strike, uh, but it won. And I think the lesson there is that uh, although your strike was not unlawful, but the lesson is that if you organize, yeah, um, and uh, you can win, yeah. Uh, and, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Even, even against uh, you know uh, the state or even your own leadership, if necessary. Yeah. So, a lot of promising sparks and shoots coming out of the left wing uh, labor socialist uh, coalition across uh, you know the UK and the United States and the world, um, which brings us into the the fundamental sort of uh, meat of the show. Here, we're going to be talking about an essay that you just wrote and published. Uh, it's in Critique, the Journal of Socialist Theory. It's called Structural Reform and the Problem of Socialist Strategy Today. And we get at this inside, outside, structural reform, uh, contradictions of capitalism and organizations and all of that, what we've just talked about for the last 10 minutes or so. So it's all very apt. Um, I'm going to put this essay up on the show notes. You have been so kind to put it on your website. Um, hopefully get so much attention that we crash it temporarily. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. We'll, we'll see. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, I came across this essay. I, I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, not only because I like your work and it, it's very parallel to mine because, you know, I'm, I'm a good narcissist like everyone. Uh, but it really does cover a lot of the content that longtime listeners of the show uh, will be very, very familiar with. So we want to get into that, um, in terms of, you know, bit by bit, piece by piece, we're going to do a close read of this. So tell us a little bit about the impulse behind writing the piece. I mean, clearly it's very topical. You're talking about Syriza and you're looking ahead at a, at a Corbyn government yeah. uh, in the UK, but, but take us back to the moment that you first conceived of this piece. Um, what led you in that direction? Well, I kind of, I've been interested in this sort of area, um, Paul Ansas and Andre Gortz and structural reform, uh, ever since my, my PhD, which I finished in 2008. Um, but um, I kind of didn't do that much with it after I finished my studies. And it was only with um, 
I mean, clearly something, something changed um, after the uh, financial crisis, um, particularly, you know, around uh, when, when Syriza was starting to make gains, 2012-ish. Um, right. And then you get this kind of amazing wave of um, radical left formations that spring up um, in the kind of space vacated by the mainstream social democratic formations like, um, you know, uh, PASOK, but you've also got the... Um, uh, what's going on in in Spain? The, the kind of collapse of, uh, of social democracy into uh, kind of um, austerian parties, just like any conservative party, uh, and you get the rise of groups like um, like Podemos uh, and uh, the left bloc in Portugal, uh, and then also um, Bernie Sanders. You know that these kind of movements they take different forms, don't they? But they all kind of have. It seemed to me they had the, the same kind of core in common, which was this idea of. Uh, a combination of the kind of classic electoral um, or parliamentary campaigns to, to form a government, um, but supported by sort of genuinely mass forms of mobilisation, uh, sort of grassroots organisations. So they, 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 they weren't the, the, the kind of classic social democratic formations. They were something new. And it seemed like the stuff that I'd been interested in a few years ago had this re- renewed currency. It was... Um, what was happening and so i wanted to think about um what these sort of resources from the past particularly from the 70s and the 60s to some extent um, can tell us about what's happening now in some senses exactly yeah yeah so there's the whole vivify something in your piece you bring up at one point uh, early on in the intro that uh this is at once a a new phenomenon Uh, this would have uh these uh left coalition uh, parties or or fractions or whatever you want to call it sort of emerging on the one hand that's very new because it's a very new kind of political economic context after the great recession mm. and the uh you know fiscal crisis of the state uh, the most recent one um in the euro crisis and all the rest of it but it's also old and so far as the the stakes and the terms of the debate are are somewhat are somewhat old so it sounds to me like uh, you know you you came to this topic through a, a series of disappointments, say with P- uh, Pasok in, in, in Greece, which which was a, a socialist party at one point. Uh, Papandreou, the one-time uh, prime minister, was, I believe, the head of the Socialist International at, at one point. Yeah. And this is the guy who ushered in uh, you know, austerity in Greece. And so um, that experience, uh, on the one hand, could be very, um, you know, dispiriting and and and, and uh, it could lead to a certain form of paralysis but it sounds like you turned that disappointment to, into a generative uh, process well I, I i was just inspired by and excited by the rise of these new left formations and i mean like you say they're trying to do something new and they often were just new they, they come out of nowhere you know or at least they've been small organizations that suddenly had this massive spurt in popularity um, or in the case of Corbyn, um, you get this kind of weird development within the official party of social democracy, where against all um, against all the odds and against what everyone had been saying forever, which is that you, the left could never reclaim the Labour Party. That's what I've been saying for years and years. And suddenly the left kind of essentially takes control 
of this established organization with amazing resources, with roots in trade unions, with a kind of uh, a, a sort of national brand recognition, with established, you know, structures and great finances. And there was clearly something really exciting and new happening here. But also, like you say, uh, some quite old problems were raising their head again. Uh, and we were confronting, I guess we were confronting problems that um, in some ways we haven't ever had to confront, or not for a long time, you know, because the left have never got anywhere near power. So <laughs> as I say kind of, often on the show, you know, these are good problems to have. These are the exactly. problems that every, yeah. every socialist uh, is just dying to have in his or her lifetime. Yeah, uh, you know, you write in this piece, uh, as, I, as I alluded to earlier, um, there's this shift that Leo Panish and Sam Gendon have called uh, a move from protest to politics. And so you, you elaborate there. Uh, it's a shift away from the anti-globalization and anti-war demonstrations from the early, uh, the early aughts, you might say, uh, into uh, uh, this idea that uh, radical left organizing can cohere with a certain kind of electoral campaign and we can take control of the state and change it more directly. And as you raise, uh, this, this change of emphasis brought novelty in some respects. Mm -hmm. And others, of course, it represented a return to one of the oldest controversies in socialist thought. And we're going back to the folks that you bring up, Bernstein, Luxembourg, Lenin, Kautsky. All the classics are back in a big way. And uh, so you frame this between the distinction uh, that a lot of folks uh, sort of harken back to, which is that of reform versus revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how does that usually take shape in, in these debates? The, you know, those classic debates, um, we're still operating in their orbit, I guess. You know, we, we've not found a way to escape them. Uh, that, that kind of classic confrontation uh, and that way of posing the problem. Um, and while I think it, 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 it sheds light on the problems that we face, um, I've always been unhappy with this uh, kind of stark polarization of reform or revolution. Um, and it, it seems to me that there's there there've been other more creative ways of thinking through this problem that have tried to without without sort of um, without seeking to uh, to say there's there's no distinction between reform and revolution without saying that the, that, that this polarity is completely rubbish and we should just transcend it. There've been really creative attempts to think about a way of navigating a path from reform. Uh, and that kind of classic electoral strategy uh, of social democratic social parties to something like revolutionary rupture. So it's a, a kind of a kind of wise reformism that's aware of the structural limits to reform within capitalism. You know, it's the idea that you can't you you can't kind of um, you can't um, take away capitalist power. You can't. Um, you know, you can't nationalize uh, uh, capitalist uh, uh, companies without them noticing it. No matter, no matter how right. gradually you do it, you know they're, they're going to they're going to realize and they're going to fight back. And they're going to exactly. <laughs> so, um, but there have been this become really creative thought in the past, uh, often associated with I mean, we guess we could call it broadly left Euro communism. So, I mean, I think the phenomenon of Euro communism itself is really interesting. Uh, the way that those the communist parties in Italy, particularly, but also France and Spain, tried to rethink strategy um, and, and to make it relevant to conditions in, you know, kind of liberal democracy. Um, right. 
often that sort of debate was done within the wider parameters of Stalinist thinking. So, you know, what was going on often with the leaders like um, Tsugliati, for example, in the PCI uh, and Berlinger. It's not actually something what Berlinger I like, but um, they, what they were trying to do was to try to, to try to reframe the PCI in this case as a sort of respectable left flank of social democracy to kind of situate themselves as as, as possible coalition partners in a kind of leftist government. Um, and I think they, they were sliding into a kind of classic reformism while maintaining a kind of rhetorical Marxism. Mm. But within those groups, there were much more interesting thinkers like Paul Ansas and like Ingrao and other people. Uh, Gauss, he wasn't a Eurocommunist, but he was in that kind of milieu. Um, and they were trying to think through uh, the way in which you can combine electoral struggle, the way in which you can combine struggles for reform with trying to build a sort of uh, a counterpower to capital that would, would, would be capable of conducting a revolutionary rupture, but one which wouldn't just kind of drop out of the sky. You know, there's a kind of semi-millenarian thinking, I think, in, in modern Trotskyism, where you just got no idea, there's no, there's no concrete account of how day-to-day struggles lead to a situation of dual power. You know, this in their in the kind of sketch of revolution, it's always really rather mysterious. <laughs> how, it's quite messianic. These, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think to, uh, was it um, Colin Barker's Revolutionary Rehearsals? So is this mm. sort of the, I think, the, the, the an example of that par excellence. It's, it's an analysis of these various sort of upturns and struggle that sort of have this kind of almost kind of a messianic uh, kind of uh, – uh, appeal, yeah. Anyway, uh, so you you go to Euro communism. Let's talk a little bit of maybe. I mean, you've, you've already sort of given a, a nice context of that in terms of what the leadership was, uh, but 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 maybe spell that out for my audience. I mean, I think the the millennials in in the house, uh, uh, which comprise I think a large uh, portion of my audience, uh, millennials broadly conceived, um, probably know very little about Euro communism. Uh, most of them probably know far more about the Russian Revolution, for God's mm. sakes, than they know about uh, Eurocommunism, which was something that happened uh, well within the lifetime of of, of their parents and, and yeah. some of them, you know, themselves. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's a, it's a sort of blip in the radar I screen of of sort of broader socialist history because at least I would I would wager and I'd like to get your take on this that that the moment that our theoretical capacities emerged. To, to consider something like a Euro-communist alternative, mm. uh, the global economy had a way of uh, foreclosing those possibilities in, in the sphere yeah. of global capitalism and political economy. So I don't know if you agree with that take or not, but maybe kind of spell that out and you can do that far better than I can. You have much more of that under your belt, I'm sure. Well, I hope so. I don't know. We'll see. But um, yeah, and it's, it's kind of, um, it's almost like a lost history now. It's, uh, it was, I mean, Euro-communism was a kind of mass movement, if you like. It was the kind of um, the official line of, particularly the PCI, the the, uh, the Italian Communist Party, um, which was trying to think through uh, revolutionary strategy. Uh, in, 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 I mean, they kind of drew on the heritage of Gramsci, you know, uh, and had that that kind of um, grounding in the idea that there was something different. Uh, in the West than there was in, in the East, you know, that the kind of classic um, October 1917 insurrectionary strategy uh, just just wasn't, it just wasn't applicable in the conditions of uh, post-Second World War Italy. 
Um, and there is some element of that faith in this because you've got people like uh, Togliatti, a big Stalinist, you know, who, who are acting on Moscow's orders, it seems. Uh, what Moscow wants, of course, is um, it doesn't want to rock the boat after the Second World War. It wants to, it wants to build alliances with the Western capitalist democracies. Uh, and the line becomes that um, communist parties in uh, each different country should develop their own national roads to socialism, which kind of replicates Stalinism, you know, the kind of um, socialism in one country idea, uh, but also is about diluting um, anything about communist parties in Italy, in France, in Spain that looked like it would scare off the bourgeoisie. You know, they were essentially trying to build what the, what the Italians called an anti-monopoly front. Uh, kind of extension of the popular front, you know, where they'd kind of attract um, progressive, the progressive bourgeoisie and um, manufacturing capital, um, small businesses in an alliance against finance capital and against the uh, the monopolies, which they said was the, you know, the driving force of capitalism. Right. And now that was just, and just for clarification, now that was not only just kind of a, a strategic kind of, um, you know, impulse, but it was a direct if I'm not mistaken, it was a direct response and rebuttal to the more centralized, uh, one-size-fits-all uh, communist strategy that prevailed in a lot of the communist parties that were more uh, directed yeah. uh, from, say, Moscow or, or otherwise. Is that, is that right? I mean, say in the PCF in France and, and, and otherwise. Well, there's also, there's also a parallel development where these parties increasingly um, assert their independence from Moscow. And they become increasingly critical, in slightly mealy-mouthed ways, but they become critical of, um, you know, the Stalinist um, suppression of um, of rights uh, and the various abuses that happen. Uh, and they 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 come out um, with various statements saying they believe in um, party pluralism. They believe in the defence of uh, and kind of tr- and extension of. Um, the kind of civil and political rights have evolved in Western capitalist democracy. So they're trying to trying to distance themselves from that um, Eastern Bloc model, that kind of monolithic model of of communism. You know, the one party state. Um, and so, what begins as a a kind of a, a, a tactical maneuver um, within the parameters of what? Russia's or the Soviet Union's foreign policy is, you know, not, not, not trying to upset the cart and not trying to um, try not to alienate the capitalist powers. It kind of it spills over and it becomes a sort of genuine attempt to think through how can we build a really democratic socialism, democratic communism in the West? Right. Um, how do we draw on the, the great kind of cultural democratic achievements in places like, you know, Italy, France um, and, and other places? And I think there's, um, as time goes on, it's, it's more and more genuine about trying to create uh, socialism with a, with a human face. And that's where the sort of left wing, if you like, of the Euro-communist parties come in, um, who, who um, seek to do something different than simply chart a course back to respectable social democracy. They want to retain a sort of ruptural edge to the politics. They want to retain a definitely anti-capitalist edge to those parties' politics mm-hmm. and resist the drift into reformism, in inverted commas. So it's a really interesting period. I mean, it doesn't last that long. It's sort of, it's kind of high point is the 1970s. 
And you're right, there's a clear connection with the, the, the crisis that hits at that point. Um, and yeah, uh, and it kind of disappears. But of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, these, these ideas, the parties that uh, most of all, some of them anyway, particularly the PCI, that were coming up with these really creative ideas, uh, they just disband themselves. They disappear, and these ideas um, tend to get lost in history now. But uh, I think there's a lot of um, useful stuff, a lot of resources to, uh, to excavate, if you like, from the period. I mean, there's a tremendous parallel now that that occurs to me here. I mean, you, you don't you don't talk explicitly about Eurocommunism in your essay in your article, uh, which is why I wanted to bring it out. Folks can and absolutely must read this article. Just 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 read it, people. It's uh, it's it's really good. I'm not just flattering my guest. If I had the time and the wherewithal and the abilities. Uh, I, you know, I myself, uh, this is very similar to the kind of strategic orientation, the historical kind of synthesis that I would have come up with. And, and most of the people I think who I, I consider, you know, worthwhile political thinkers would have come up with. So it's great to see that there are people who are seeing the same dynamics. And of course, you use your talents uh, to put that to paper. P- people have to read this thing. I mean, this is a mm-hmm. manifesto for the Dead Punnett Society, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I mean, really, I mean, it's I mean, but there's something that's it, it's 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 vindicating as well. I mean, it's validating, I think. That for my audience and for myself and perhaps even for you, that, that, that these are these are problems that a lot of people are noticing in their own particular unique contexts that yeah, have a yeah. general a generalizability uh, to them in a sense that we can all sort of uh, adopt. So, but what we, you do talk about in your piece more explicitly is Syriza, and it seems to me that there's a similarity there between the experience of Syriza in Greece and Euro communism, insofar as uh, each are oftentimes held up as um as cautionary tales as to what happens when you stray too far from so-called revolutionary principles yeah or the or the leninist revolutionary strategy of of dual power the dictatorship of the proletariat um and they are held up as uh you know uh, failures of so-called reformism uh, so let's get, let's, let's get to the Syria case. Uh, as, as I mentioned off air, I'm going to have an episode on Syriza. I'm going to bring on someone who studies this explicitly. Uh, at some point, there are a lot of fantastic people out there. This won't be that episode, but we will have to talk about Syriza, obviously to get to some of these arguments. So we'll have to cover it kind of, uh, mm. uh, briefly, but talk to me a little bit about Syriza and how it illustrates some of your concerns. Well, um, I think there's, um, there's a, a definite tendency now for what we might call, I mean, this, this, I'm using the term perhaps slightly crudely, but you know, the Leninist, um, uh, critique, which kind of feels itself, uh, vindicated by the, the degeneration of Syriza in, in power and, you know, the kind of reinforces the narrative that the kind of original sin of, um, reformism is uh, the attempt to utilize the structures of the capitalist state. You know, once, once you enter it and you, and you try to do anything beyond more than making propaganda from within those structures to address the sort of masses outside, then you become incorporated by, uh, by, that, by those institutions and by capitalism. Um, and um, what happened to Syriza is just one more example of this, this remorseless logic working itself out. You know, they were kind of doomed from the start. But in the moment that Syriza announced its intentions to form a government of the left. Um, it, um, and certainly when it actually won the election, then it was doomed to follow this path into 
you know, some disappointment and then end up um, simply implementing austerity in a slightly, slightly nicer way than, um, you know, new democracy have been doing it before. But it's, that's, that seems to me, I'm, I'm just not happy with that kind of story. It's, it's just too, there's, I don't think there was anything inevitable about the trajectory of Syriza in power. Um, what I think is that the likelihood of failure was always very high. I think the likelihood of um, not being able to, you know, surpass or overthrow capitalism is always very high. Whatever strategy you take, you know, because yeah. you face it, who has ever done it? Perhaps that's perhaps one or two instances in history. And even then, they weren't that successful in the end. You know, they weren't happy stories. I have to cite here uh, Nathan Robinson, who is, uh, he's a Brit. He's over here in the U.S. He started a magazine called Current Affairs, and I was listening to him. He's a friend of the show, and I was listening to him on another podcast, and they asked him, and they said, well, you know, they're talking about the left and, and, and prospects. And they said, well, you know, uh, you know, what do you think of the left's sort of prospects here? And he said, well, you know, our prospects are always dim. We represent those in society who don't have power as, as, as it's defined in capitalism. Now we have a certain other kinds of power, right? Yeah. But it's not a power that's organized by capital. Uh, it's sort of disorganized by capital. So, yeah, just, m- 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 uh, you know – Echoing Nathan's uh, sort of claim there, it's like, well, hell yeah, of course it's difficult. Uh, it's it's uh, we're we're the ones representing those who don't have the power. So I, I hear you there. That that you, you write uh, elsewhere here that um, you know th- there are folks who sort of sat back and abstained in the KKE and uh, Antarsia uh, to Marxist, communist, uh, vaguely uh, anarchist, in some senses um, formations who refused to take part in uh, the series electoral coalition and they sort of sat back and waiting for it to fail so they could say i told you so exactly and i think that um they they never had a there was never a clear concrete alternative so groups like antasia i mean brilliant as far as i know brilliant activists in greece and you know uh, really really hard fighters um and nothing you know can admire people who were were campaigning uh for a socialist alternative there but in terms of their strategy um, I just don't think they had one. I don't think they had one other than to say that Syriza was going to fail because reformism always fails. But um, they hadn't. There was there was no clear sense of how they could actually address the question of power. And I think what what Syriza did, uh, and which was so impressive, is that they unflinchingly addressed the question of power you know they 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 sort of said uh we need to take power we need to take government power um they at least started to to try to work out um how to how to build a movement um that would take power and then see what it could do from then on um because the alternative was just to kind of give up from the start you know the alternative was a kind of uh, faux radicalism, where you say, "Well, we can't take power because we'll be incorporated." But that if you don't, if you don't even start to address the question of government power, taking political power, you're you're just kind of marginalising yourself. You know, you're 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 doomed to fail uh, yourself too. Um, so, I think that the, the key moment there was when it was Cyprus who. Uh, who came up with that slogan for a government of the left and kind of grasped the necessity that's right. uh, to, to, of taking power. And that's, I mean, the, the key thing there was it, it actually galvanized uh, the movement. You know, this was the moment when Syriza really started to look like a government in waiting and a power, a power uh, against austerity in waiting. 
And uh, I think what they grasped was something that should be really obvious, but often isn't on the left, which is that it's really, really hard to see, really hard to see how any real mass radicalization, any any kind of mobilization of working class people behind left wing ideas, how that won't at first at least take an electoral expression, how that won't lead to involve the kind of electoral rise of a party which um, has its eyes on um, on power, has its eyes on, on taking um, a formula government within the structure of the capitalist state. And I think that we just have to we have to accept that. We have to realise that that's the that's the pattern historically. When there are upsurges of uh, of left wing ideas in established capitalist democracies, time after time after time, they're expressed in the form of the rise of um, of, of an electoral party. And so, I think we need to work with that dynamic and and, and not sort of polemicise about it or step aside from it, but try to find a way in which we can draw out the kind of implicit radicalism at work you know how how can we how can we push these movements beyond the usual social democratic reformism that leads to disappointment uh how can we come up with a a way of struggling uh that that takes on a kind of dynamic logic um that that pushes people beyond those limits, that starts to probe the limits of capitalism and starts to find ways through experimentation, through building counterpower outside the state as much as within it, but ways of actually uh, taking that movement forward. Right, right. It's worth noting uh, August Nimtz is a Marxist uh, scholar here in the United States. Um, he is, uh, although I'm, I have some differences with August's kind of take on this, but it's worth noting. I mean, even though there are differences here, he's written extensively on Marx and Engels' own take about the importance of electoral politics and electoral mm-hmm. strategy. And they, they famously wrote that, uh, you know, uh, workers' uh, parties should engage in elections uh, to sort of take the temperature of the class struggle in that particular national, you know, formation. And uh, August Nemtz has also recently released a book uh, called Lenin's Electoral Strategy. And Lenin had a, a similar uh, formulation, of course, uh, prior to the October Revolution. Um, so, you know, it's, it's to say that there, th- this isn't a, a, um, a revisionist, necessarily a revisionist Marxist approach, right? This no, goes back right. to the, 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 the beginning. Not to say that that in and of itself, right, that, well, Marx said so, so it had to be true. Like, we don't want to pull that move. We don't want to make that move either. But but it's not a revisionist, yeah, yeah, not a revisionist yeah. Uh, yeah. argument in any, any stretch. No, there are those resources, even within kind of classical Leninism and Bolshevik thought. I mean, another really interesting um development uh was the um the theory of the united front and the workers government which uh the Comintern had as its policy i think it's um the fourth congress in 1922 um what had happened there was and this this goes against the usual narrative from the kind of modern day leninist position you know which is that lenin and trotsky said you need to maintain absolute independence from the capitalist state you shouldn't seek to work within those institutions and what the Comintern was saying in 1922, you know, Lenin's still alive, Trotsky's still very much active, and so on and so on, um, was that uh, after the kind of ebbing of the revolutionary wave in, in Europe after in, in the early 1920s, they looked around and realised there, there were no Soviets, you know, in Germany, in France, in Britain, and so on. Um, and what had happened was a kind of renewed hegemony of, of reformism. 
Um, and their, their new tactic was to sort of, you know, in contra distinction to the kind of ultra left turn, um, where, you know, sort of, uh, social democrats were denounced as, as this and that was to say that we need to work, uh, with w- working class as they are. And we need to take up immediate demands. And this is where the idea of transitional demands come from, you know, that we take up the immediate needs and interests of the working class and we press them forward. And a logical extension of this is if you want to form, if you want to create reforms to improve the immediate condition of the working class, and there's no imminent prospect of a sort of revolutionary overthrow in a situation of dual power, what do you need? Well, you need some kind of political instrument to carry these reforms out. So you need government you need a what they call a workers government and so there was different iterations of what the workers government meant and it was a bit vague but something just like um uh carl radek uh, and clara zetkin were quite clear that the kpd uh should aim to take um power electorally or be part of a coalition to introduce transitional reforms um, and their, their their idea was that as long as this was aimed at radicalizing a mass movement outside the state and empowering workers, you know, beyond um, kind of elitist machinations within the state structure itself, that this was a perfectly legitimate, in fact, the only uh, feasible way of moving towards a revolutionary rupture. In fact, I think Karl Radek, you know, the Bolsheviks said that this was, in, in the conditions of the time, this was the only feasible way of moving towards what he called the dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, communist parties had to get elected to power <laughs> uh, and implement reforms through the capitalist state. So there are these sort of lost histories that often people don't know about or forget about. Um, and Leninism isn't quite often, you know, what people say it was it's much more it's much more it's much more interesting <laughs> i think that it's got right, and for those interest. i mean just just to lay down some you know for those who who don't uh, have the history under their belt of the kind of a common turn in the margin the more marginal characters a, a carl raddick mm. uh you know i mean let's let's just say he was not um Carl Raddick was not an, an unorthodox member of the common turn. <laughs> Victor Serge, uh, famous, uh, you know, infamous uh, a guy who, who wrote quite a bit uh, on uh, that experience, uh, who was uh, more of a kind of an anarchist, but very sympathetic to the Bolsheviks in the common turn, uh, you know, sort of portrayed Raddick as a, as a, as a bureaucrat and an apparatchik. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so now whether, whether or not that's true or fair, I mean, that's just to say that we, what you're pointing to there is not uh, a kind of a, you know, alternative to the history of, you know, the Bolsheviks and, and the common turn and the, yeah. the communist international. It's something that runs very, it's directly through uh, the course. If we seem to be a little uncharitable to Leninists or Leninism or that legacy, um, suffice it to say that there, there is a, there is a certain kind of alternative yeah. narrative. You yourself might not agree with what we say next about non-reformist reforms and Corbyn and all the rest of it, but uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's, Leninism was never as monolithic as the kind of latter day epigonies of Lenin seem to you know seem to assume. It was much more creative, and you know this was the the idea of the workers' government um, implementing transitional demands, transitional reforms. This was official policy for the, for the common turn approved by Moscow uh, in the early 1920s. And it only came to a halt because soon after this, you know, Lenin dies and Stalin takes over and this whole stuff is just lost. 
This is crucial stuff. And like I said, I love this because this isn't stuff that you're able to get into directly in your piece uh, with the kind of uh, narrative. I mean, so I mean, this is good because I'm oftentimes accused by folks who are more in line with the uh, quote unquote Leninist uh, political strategy, dual power, dictatorship of the proletariat and all of that. There are some formations here in the United States that adhere much more closely to that. Socialist Alternative is one of them that has a much more nuanced, I think, electoral strategy, but they are nonetheless advocates ultimately of dual power. The ISO, of course, is an affiliate uh, or uh, a a long – once was an affiliate of the British SWP who has a very similar kind of Trotskyist, Leninist kind of uh, orientation. So – so we're not being totally unfair here. Uh, we're we're resuscitating, revivifying a certain kind of uh, lost history. Let's go into the specifics of the article piece by piece sure. here. You write in the very beginning. We're going to backtrack here. We covered a lot of really fantastic context, and now we're going to lay out the strategic debate and your particular intervention is, is the, the kind of strategy that you'd like to put forward. Uh, you write here, starting with Leninism, you write here, the trouble with Leninist critique, however, is that no matter how opposite its diagnosis of the constraints imposed by series parliamentary statism. It remained unable to offer a credible concrete alternative and the political groups that cleaved to the strategic orientation, such as in Tarsia were largely bypassed winning nothing remotely close to the degree of support that series was able to gather. And so uh, you talked a little bit about the paralysis that is sort of um, implicit in the Leninist position of refusing to engage in electoral or state uh, yeah. policies. Yeah. So there's, there's um, what I took from, there's a really, really great book. It's very long. <laughs> it's really great uh, by a guy called Donald Sassoon who wrote uh, 100 Years of Socialism. Massive book. But one of the, in fact, it's almost like an aside in there, but I, it really struck me. One of the things he said was that um, the socialist left has never been able to bridge the gap between what he calls um, the end state, you know, kind of vision of what we want, socialism, and the immediate sort of demands of the present. And Mm. socialists tend to get caught at either ends of this pole. And I thought about this, uh, they get stuck there, you know, you get the people who kind of get immersed in the immediate demands and who get incorporated into the system because they, you know, they're, 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 they're implementing reforms and they find themselves drawn into this uh, remorseless logic of um, once once you take over uh, uh, you know once you're once you're in government you become responsible for a, for a capitalist economy and you start to manage that economy on its own terms because if you don't you know what do you get economic crisis you get capital flight and you get all the kind of problems that, that assail uh, leftist parties in power on the other hand, you've got the revolutionaries who go in for a kind of um, slightly caricature here but a kind of basically a kind of purist line who say, well, we're not going to dirty our hands with, uh, you know, trying to implement reforms via the state. What we're going to do is we're going to hold out for um, the uh, the insurrection and that'll solve all our problems, right? And we can avoid the kind of the, the kind of grubby compromises that the reformists have to do. And yet what you end up with there is a sort of, in the end of the day, a kind of, uh, like you said, a messianism. You know, you're waiting for this kind of, eruption from from nowhere but which never quite emerges and so you get this sort of a kind of bad faith on both ends of these poles you've got the reformists who are forever um putting off 
the day at which they they challenge capitalism. You know, so socialism is relegated to a, a sort of infinitely, you know, to a horizon that never comes. Um, the, the ultimate goal is kicked into the long grass. And on the other hand, you have the the, the kind of crudely the Leninist reformists, uh, sorry, a revolutionary left, who um, are always also waiting for something that never comes to. You know, there's always already the revolution is kind of just around the corner, but it's never quite here. And they can never quite make, you know, what's what's the connection between the day-to-day struggles, paper sales, you know, building marches, <laughs> making speeches. What? How, how do you move yeah. from that to a situation of dual power and insurrection? There's a kind of, right. that very big question is always glossed over. <laughs> you, well, you, sell more, you sell more papers. That's what you I do. guess so. You, you and build, I say this with love. As, as, yeah. as listeners will know, I mean, I, I, I was there. I, I used to sell papers. I hawked them and, and I talked to people. And you just, you I don't know, you sell more passionately. I tried that. Um, it didn't get us anywhere. But anyway, I mean, hey, somebody's got to do it, right? Well, sure. Yeah, I, you know, I, don't I, don't knock, I don't want to knock no, anyone. No, I, think, I, think, I think revolutionary parties perform yeah. a really, really useful job. I mean, you know, these people often yeah. the workhorses of the movement are the ones who build the marches, are the ones who, you know. So That's I don't right. mean to dismiss these groups, but I think strategically, I don't think they really have much sense concretely of how they envisage a revolution happening today, you know, how it happened. It's, it's never right. started. I think one thing that your your piece points to here is, is – um, and of course, you rightly mentioned that you you necessarily caricature each of these positions, right? Because reform yeah. versus revolution is in itself an abstraction. It's a caricature yeah. of of each uh, in order to set it against one another. Uh, but so you know what what happens more often? So is 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 that what happens is these revolutionary you know quasi Leninist uh, grouplets end up. Um, actually engaged in what our reformist struggles yeah, themselves. Yeah, absolutely. This was something that um, Richard Seymour, who you may, have, uh, may, you may not know of, um, he runs a blog called Leninology, really, really good. Uh, and yeah, he argues... I wager most of my audience would know who he is over here. He's okay. got a pretty, pretty good name recognition in the States. Oh, excellent. Yeah, he's an indispensable read. And one of the things he, he argued was uh, precisely this, and he actually really annoyed a lot of people when he said this, which is that that revolutionary or, uh, socialists, um, there's not really that much to distinguish them in terms of their kind of day-to-day practice from reformists. They're not really doing anything very different. Uh, for all intents and purposes, his phrase was, we're all reformists now, you know, um, right. because, uh, the, the, and it's almost like, and this is something that, that um Panagiotis Soteris has argued uh, too, a sort of Greek um, sort of critic of Syriza. But one of the things he says, which I think is, is quite right, is that often in practice, um, revolution, the, the sort of revolutionary status of revolutionary groups is fundamentally it's a rhetorical gesture. You know, it's it's a kind of uh, it's, a, it's a bit of branding. It's, it's how what differentiates us from those reformists. But in practice, in, in terms of the way they operate. There's not a great deal of difference. They're campaigning for the same sorts of things in the same sorts of movements as reformists. Um, and so I have a suspicion that um, revolutionaries are often rhetorically revolutionaries. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, not, right, really a, it's not really a concrete right. thing about them. Well, this is what we call here uh, in, in the United States a virtue signaling. Mm. And that, that doesn't have a very kind uh, – that's not a very charitable way of uh, de- 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 describing someone. I think Panagiotis uh, Sotiris here has it better 
as you write and as you mentioned and as you write in your piece. Um, in fact, really, this is about identity, right? He says, indeed, uh, Panagiotis further suggests that this abstract invocation of revolutionary intent tends to function more in terms of identity rather than practice. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the, the concrete substance of revolutionary strategy remains at best only vaguely defined. Now, that's not to say that these people don't believe it. I mean, I, I, I know for a fact they believe it. I mean, they're very, very passionate. Yeah. Some of the most, some of the most uh, passionate people about uh, you know social and radical political and economic change out there. The, I think it's a, it's a, it's tragic, however, I, at least in my estimation and yours, that their strategic orientation would some would would in a sense prevent uh, their radical and passionate intentions from from becoming a reality. And that's precisely you right, because they don't have the right uh, strategic field of vision, which as listeners of my show will know is provided by neo-Marxian state theory. In a sense, as, as you, you sort of uh, sum up throughout the rest of your piece, these theoretical um, orientations, these theoretical frameworks uh, are, are, are literally our eyes. It's, it's our eyes, our, our way of seeing the world and the various contradictory and dialectical dynamics in the world so that we know how to act in a strategic way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first, the first one that you lay out here is that my audience should be fairly familiar with this, is um, Palantzis, the way that he conceptualizes the state as a condensation of class struggle and um, a, a field, a terrain on which uh, classes and class fractions uh, sort of do their work. So, so spell that out for us. Um, that's something I said, you know, folks who listen to my state theory series will have, uh, something, uh, you will know quite a bit about that. If you haven't listened to the state theory series, go back and check it out after this episode. It'll be very relevant. What does Palantzis mean to you? Well, I think Palantzis is theory, later theory of the state as spelled out particularly in state power socialism. It was the last book before he died. Uh, 1978, I think it was published, but that's, that yeah. for me is when he, he comes out with an approach to capitalist state power, which I think, um, remains unsurpassed. You know, it's, it's the kind of still the cutting edge for me, um, Marxist, uh, theory of the state. Um, and he wants to, well, he, he argues basically that we should think of the state in terms analogous to Marx's um, conceptualization of capital. You know, so it's, it's not a thing. It's a social relation. Um, the, the state is not a thing. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a kind of concrete thing, although it has a, a what he calls an institutional materiality. It has concrete reality. Um, it has institutional form, but it's not a monolithic block. It's, um, it's, 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 it's also a field of, uh, of, of, of power where various social forces kind of constantly modify it and, uh, and the balance of class forces is, is reflected and sort of refracted via the state, which produces a really, really sophisticated um, account of, of the state uh, and gets beyond um, the sort of crude, for me, the crude formulations of, of the state, which I think tend to be rooted in Lenin's state and revolution, where Lenin tends to assert that once you identify the core function of the capitalist state, which is to you know to reproduce capitalist power, that's pretty much all you need to know about the state, um, and there's nothing more to it than that. You know, the, the only thing that remains to do is to 
surround it and smash it and replace it with a worker's state, you know, because it's essentially absolutely bourgeois. It's just uh, simply draws from that famous uh, saying from Engels that the state is, um, you know, an organ for the uh, suppression of one class, repression of one class by another. And clearly, that's there's there's a, that's true. There's an element of truth there, but it's not it's not the entire picture. And I think that Palantir gets beyond that in an interesting way. And the way he gets beyond it opens up a really interesting, sophisticated um, set of possibilities about how to orient socialist strategy in advanced capitalist democracies, you know. And uh, that's what he develops in that kind of famous or even infamous last chapter of state power socialism where he starts to set out this vision of um, a kind of articulated process of of, of um, getting people elected within the state to sort of, um, you know, to build uh, centres of power within state institutions, not not just at national levels, but at local levels and local government and municipal forms and so on, um, to modify the, the institutional materiality of the state and sort of disrupt and isolate bourgeois power centres and things like this. Right. So you, you mentioned in your piece, just to backtrack here, just so we don't gloss over this, because I really I really appreciated this because it, it, it speaks to the necessity of the kind of uh, field of struggle that Polansis lays out. Uh, one of the ways that folks often sidestep this debate altogether is just to point to, as you'd mentioned, smashing the state. You have to smash the state yeah. uh, with a dual power framework, where whereas the workers – have their own sort of uh, governmental apparatus and power center outside of the capitalist state, and then you would in, you would institute a, what what's often called by Marx and others the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, you you point here. You write uh, as Nikos Palantzas points out, these phrases were for Marx and Engels at most signposts, which indicate problems. Yeah. Uh, those being you know the class nature of the state the necessity of a stage of transition towards the process of the state's withering. Um, but he writes, but these signposts have since become transformed in Marxist orth- uh, orthodoxy into apparently definitive answers in themselves to those same problems. And so what were initially set out by Marx and Engels as signposts, as, as certain kind of contradictions that should, that should draw our critical attention, yes. have become answers in and of themselves, yeah. which are just – which are necessary, but I mean, these signposts are necessary, but insufficient. And so you seem to be arguing that Polanzas can give us better answers yes. to these, to these uh, signposts, yes, these does. dilemmas that are pointed to in the classical uh, Marxian. Yeah, tradition. absolutely. So, yeah, it's, it's like, like you say, so in the orthodoxy, those phrases, smashing the state and the detention of the proletariat, um, it's almost like for, um, you know, the kind of, uh, that kind of orthodox Leninists, uh, revolutionary left. These are the answers. You know, these, these these things were solved by Marx and Lenin. This is what we've got to do. But of course, they're not answers. They're 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 like you say, signposts. They're they're indicating problems that we need to analyze, and we can only analyze them concretely. You know, in in the conjunction that we're in, and with the full kind of vision of, of the complexity of the institutional forms and the you know uh, organizational forms before us. And I think what 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 Polanzas tries to do is to Think what what does it actually mean to smash the state? What does it what does it mean to um, to, to to transform political power uh, from something which tends to embed and reproduce bourgeois domination to one which would actually embed and reproduce working class 
domination with a view towards the kind of eventual abolition of, of class itself. Uh, what would the dictatorship of the proletariat look like? And for me, I think where Palazzo's is, is most impressive are on strategy is not actually in the last chapter of state power socialism, which I think is it's good, but it's it's not it's it's got problems. A more interesting discussion actually comes out in his uh, debate with uh, Henri Weber, uh, who I think was a militant in the, the French uh, Trotskyist group in the 70s. Uh, and it's in the Palantis Reader. Uh, I forget what the title of the essay is now, but there's a really, really interesting debate slash discussion between those two where Palantis fills out in a bit more detail what he's what he's talking about. Right. It's one of the final chapters. It's called The State and the Transition to Socialism. Mm, Just as, as an aside, you, you mentioned that was in the, a, a, a collection called The Palancis Reader, Marxism, Law, and the State. It's collected by James Martin. Uh, I, I recommend that to everyone, everyone on my show who reaches out to me and said, I really liked your state theory series. What do I read on Palancis? Uh, that's the first thing I throw out there. And I, I have some specific essays that I recommend. You know, the, the interviews are fantastic. But I would even say even above and beyond state power socialism in a sense because it gives you a broader sort of view of what – so anybody who wants to read up on this, check that out. I did, don't mean to interrupt you, but that's no, a, no. a, a central collection. So you're talking about his interview with uh, uh, Henri Weber. Yeah. Um, um, one of the things I – mean, it's a really broad-ranging interview. I think I think actually Palancis runs rings around, around Weber actually. But one of the, the really interesting directions of Palazzo's argument is this, this idea that um, he, he wants to retain the idea of rupture. So Palazzo is often dismissed as, I think that um, Colin Barker does this, that he just becomes a reformist, right? But he doesn't. Yeah, well, he's a weenie, right? It's easy to paint Palazzo as a guy who just doesn't have the stomach yeah. for what it takes yeah, to be right. a real Marxist. That's right, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. So, but it's just not true. He, he talks about ruptures. He talks about... Uh, revolutionary breaks. He, he, he says that uh, what he what he kind of slightly slightly kind of provocatively calls his revolutionary road to democratic socialism, just to kind of wind up <laughs> to wind up on Weber. <laughs> I think it's good the phrase I'm trying to use. He talks about that yeah. this road can't be a gradualist road. It's not. It's not going to be tranquil. It's got to, on the contrary, incorporate a stage of real breaks. Uh, I'm quoting the climax of which, and there has to be one. It's reached when the relationship of forces on the strategic terrain of the state swings over to the side of the popular masses. But what, what he's trying to get at there, I think, is, uh, and he fills this out a bit, is that he, he simply cannot imagine, and I think he's right, that a, that a kind of revolutionary confrontation would mean a confrontation between the masses outside the state versus the state on block, you know, uh, the, the fortress state versus the in fact, the break is going to pass through the state itself. What is going to, what's going to happen, Palancis suggests, is that there will be a kind of polarization within the state apparatus in themselves too. Uh, and so th- th- we come up with a much more kind of complex and messy conception of what a revolution would look like, um, which I just think is a much more, it's just much more intuitively realistic. I mean, this, this, this seems to me, I can't see anything other than this happening if there was ever to be this kind of this kind of break so it seems like he's saying that the election of uh what we might call a left government is essential to sort of work away within the state while also seeking to work in tandem with the movement outside the states uh in a kind of you know a kind of organic dialectical relationship between the two where the reforms that are 
a left government, we might also call it a workers' government, you know, going back to the fourth uh, Congress of the Commentary, seeks to introduce transitional or structural reforms. He doesn't use that term, but that's what he's talking about. In order to empower um, people outside the states, um, in order to kind of radicalise people and to build up a sort of, to build up an institutionalised form of class power um, in things like, you know, workers' councils uh, 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 and various forms of direct democracy. Um, and in so doing, not just transfer power from the central state to a more devolved sort of set of institutions. And that's what he's, I think that's what he's, what he's doing there is he's coming up with a much more um, complex uh, idea of what the withering of the state looks like. You know, it's, it's about a kind of decentralization of power. But also in, do, in so doing, you build up a sort of counter power outside of the state that can force those representatives on to hold true to their promises, to, to keep them going, to stop them capitulating, and also to build up a counter power against capital itself that can actually take on, you know, this the, in some ways the kind of embedded structural power of capital to um, to, to sabotage and subvert uh, left wing reforms. Right, right, right. That's, I mean, that's, that's a very crucial um, strategic orientation. Let's spell out, uh, you know, this kind of, you, so you, you mentioned, just to go back, you mentioned this kind of inside-outside approach. Yeah. So this inside, uh, the electoral state, the capitalist state, electoral, uh, you know, uh, liberal democratic uh, institutions of government and outside, which is to remain, you know, push, keep pressure. I mean, as we talked, we opened the show with this. I think it was very fortuitous and, and somewhat intentional in that you mentioned that the leadership of your union was uh, was it was trying to capitulate now let's just assume for a moment and it's this is probably a fair assumption let's just af- assume for a moment that the leadership of your union is not entirely comprised of opportunistic bastards yeah. <laughs> let's it's, let's it, assume it isn't, for a moment it isn't they're good people. much like alexi cypress yeah. i mean i as yeah. easy it is i think uh, to hate that guy this these days yeah uh let's let's presume you know let's give them some credit that uh, they never would have pursued this uh strategy for seeking government had it not been for his invocation back in two, uh, 2012 at the party conference yeah um and so you know let's just assume that these people are are, are well-intentioned good faith actors um there are nonetheless going to be some institutional and structural constraints that are placed upon them and so that, so that changes their cal- calculus and you need to have people outside of the leadership structure to maintain the, the uh, you know, the pressure on these types of uh, folks that inside outside approach, I think is totally indispensable mm-hmm. in the way that you lay it out. Let's move on. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to this uh, in the B side here later on, but let's move on to Andre Gord's and his, his contribution. Let's yeah. cover that for about, uh, let's just sort of gloss over that. Cause I want to return okay. to that on the B side sure. here for my patrons and speak more explicitly about what that meant in Greece and what that means for a Corbyn Labor Party government or even say like a Sanders movement here in, in the United States. Well, yeah, Andre Gors, um, I, as far as I know, originated, um, no, he didn't, that's not true. I was going to say he originated the term structural reforms. It was actually Togliatti, PCI. But, but Andre Gors gives it um, a kind of uh, inflection, the content that um, we associate the concept with now is kind of the, you know, the, the kind of godfather of structural reform. And he's talking about something not a million miles away from uh, Polansus. He was writing at a really interesting conjuncture uh, just after the May 68, um, you know, student uprising, workers' uprising in Paris, um, and was trying to think through 
how the demands of those protesters might actually be taken forward. Um, at, at the time, it didn't it didn't look unlikely that the Gaulle would fall, the French um, the French leader, and a, a provisional government of the left would 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 come to power, and would sort of be driven forward by protesters in the street. And he's trying to think through, you know, what can what would happen? What would this dialectic between a mass movement and the state, a, a radical kind of government, look like? And so he develops this idea of the, of the structural reform and tries to think through what would what would uh, what would what he calls a not necessarily reformist reform, not the most catchy term. So what what, what would be different um, with for, from a what he calls a reformist reform? You know, what, what would a radical reform look like, and how would it be how would it be different from the usual social democratic reform? Um, and what he says is that. There are basic characteristics of non-reformist um, reforms or, or structural reforms, mm. and the one thing that he he stresses is that um, th- these reforms need to be implemented in a way that disrupt the, the equilibrium of capitalism. So they shouldn't be uh, inserted uh, in a way that um, simply fits in quite nicely with capitalist accumulation. They should aim to disrupt. That, that kind of smooth functioning, and in so doing, uh, necessitate further reforms. You know, because if when you you start to disrupt the system's equilibrium, you, you need to deal with the effects of that disruption. And it was a way of uh, of, of coming up with a, a a kind of strategy for a sort of radicalizing dynamic of almost like permanent revolution. You know, you sort of start with a series of. Uh, Immediate demands that come out of people's everyday needs, housing, jobs, whatever, things that aren't necessarily in themselves revolutionary, but the way in which you, 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 you uh, implement them uh, sort of um, necessitates further reforms that, uh, and builds up this, uh, this kind of cumulative dynamic which, 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 which moves towards more radical conclusions. And he says that the key thing here is to... And the kind of um, the characteristic of a structural reform is that they must um, they must empower uh, the popular movement. So it must be about building workers' power. It's got to be about increasing the democratic capacities of the people. So he, the examples he gives is a bit vague about what he means, but the, the few examples he gives are things like um, workers' control, nationalising industry under workers' control. Uh, socialising the investment function, so things like you know taking over banks and, and channeling investment uh, into socially useful production, uh, workers' alternative plans for production, so you know encouraging workers in, uh, in factories and offices and so on to think about how they might control the production process, the work process, uh, and how they might sort of repurpose what they do uh, to, to align it with social needs and also to encourage their own flourishing as people, you know, to get rid of boring jobs, to, to give them some sort of interest in what they do, to utilise their full capacities and skills. Um, and he, he, also, he thinks that this process builds up the kind of democratic capacities of workers in such a way that they get a taste for emancipation. Uh, and, they, and they start demanding more. So they put pressure on their leaders to push this process forward. And the more they do this, the more that they, they come into conflict with the with business confidence, with the structural power of capital, the more they'll come up with problems like capital flight, with things like disinvestment, like lockouts. And there's no guarantee that things will go in this direction, but he hopes that 
this could, with the right sort of leadership, um, contribute to that escalating dynamic of radicalization. So, you know, how do we react to capital flight? Well, we, you know, we nationalize the banks or we put in capital controls. What do we do about lockouts? Well, we allow workers to take over their own workplace and run themselves, you know. So it's a way of moving from a situation in which workers are not revolutionary, um, in which they do have a kind of social democratic consciousness. And, uh, and through the, this kind of logic of the unfolding of events, they kind of educate themselves as a kind of pedagogical process where they learn about the, the, the limits of capitalism. They learn about class power and they start to develop their own consciousness and their own um, sort of, you know, the kind of psychological uh, but also concrete um, capacities to start fighting back. Um, and it fits it fits really nicely with Palancis. And um, this, this is in Gorse's, um, he wrote a book uh, called Strategy for Labour. Uh, and also there's a, a really good essay uh, called Reform and Revolution in a book he wrote called Socialism and Revolution. They're, they're um, late 60s, early 70s. Um, so he was writing at a time a little bit before Palancis, but um, they were on the same wavelength. And, I, you know, I think this is, again, it's kind of like a, these are resources that have... Um, slightly been lost a little and I'd like to see them get resurrected because they kind of speak to us today you know they're talking about exactly the same sorts of things that we're the same problems that we're facing today well said I, mean, I couldn't agree more we're trying to bring these back to life um, you know you cited quoting you here and to sum this up here you you cite Eric Olin Wright who mm. was active in his early days uh, writing around state theory and such in those times uh, Wright uh, says um, the strategy of structural reform pivots uh, around less about questions less about how to make a revolution, yeah. and rather about how to create the social conditions within which we can know how to make a revolution. Yeah, and so it's about. I mean, people talk about the conditions of possibility. That's kind of, as uh, Palantis actually has a funny remark. I believe it's with his uh, interview with Weber, if I'm not mistaken. He has a funny remark about, yeah, you know, Marxists, uh, whatever. We're all particularly Althusserians, <laughs> always talking about the conditions of possibility. And you know, he, I mean, basically, you know, says, you know. Uh, Fuck that, right? Like we need, to, <laughs> like we need to talk more concretely. But this is really is about uh, they're creating uh, conscientiously in an eminent sort of organic way, creating the conditions of possibility yeah. for for the for the struggle yeah. towards yeah. socialism in a way that you know it's an end run around the way that Palancis sort of says these conditions of possibility is always kind of a throwaway uh, in Marxian orthodoxy in some senses. They're trying to bring bring this to life as a as a kind of a a structural um, roadmap, if you will. Exactly. I mean, there is no roadmap. That would be too easy, yeah. right? And as you as you say, rightly, we can never really know how these structural reforms will turn out. In a sense, I mean, this is my wager, and I've, I've said this in conversation with uh, some friends of mine, and that how do you know what is or isn't a non-reformist reform? And we'll get to this here in a moment on the B-side more explicitly, but I mean, my wager is that you only sort of know that after the fact. I think you're right. Yeah. And it depends on the it depends on the balance of forces, depends on the conjuncture, you know. Uh, I think as Gore says this explicitly in fact that you, you can't you can't come up with a list of structural reforms that are kind of eternally true. It depends on you know what speaks to people, what are people actually demanding, what uh, can capitalism afford at the, at this particular time. Um, so it's more um, it's a kind of strategic orientation rather than a list of 
reforms that are by definition revolutionary. And there's no such thing. Right. I think uh, the socialist movement worldwide is uh, cohering around a very principled set of demands and and aims uh, that are, you know, both generalizable across the world, uh, the capitalist world, as well as specific to their national context. Mm. For example, here in the U.S., we have to advocate for a thing called Medicare for all because yeah. we don't have a national health service. Um, and of course, you have a national health service, but you're working to save it. Uh, so yeah. I mean, th- these are, you know, these are specific contexts, and these yeah. are all in, in and of themselves sort yeah. of non-reformist reforms. Yeah. But so what we have is a nice laundry list of aims and demands. I mean, this is important. But what I fear is that this operates all too often, just as kind of a, a as, as just that, as a laundry list. As to, oh, well, to be a socialist means that you advocate for X, Y, mm-hmm. Z, right? As opposed to saying. Well, we advocate for Medicare for all because we see it as a non-reformist reform. It uh, it it, it uh, enhances workers' power. Yeah. It doesn't uh, tie the worker yeah. uh, to his or her boss for health care, and it opens up the possibility for longer strike action. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's, so it, it it expands and enhances the capacities yeah. of the working class movement. It br- it brings concrete benefits in the here and now to workers. You know, it, it does that. These reforms do actually improve people's lives, but they also open up the possibility for more reforms. They also increase people's confidence. They kind of, you know, they they might um, empower people in different ways. Uh, and that, that's important. I think people often lose... Um, I think people often lose the, the the sense of how important it is actually because because socialists are in the business after all in trying to make people's lives better. You know, we're not in the business of creating utopia. I think that there's a thing called Andrew Collier I really like uh, who wrote a book called Socialist Reason. He tries to rehabilitate the the idea of scientific socialism. It's got well, it a bad name, but I don't go with the, the entire argument. But one of his key points is I think is absolutely right is that. Socialists are not in the business of creating socialism. You know, we, we're not we're not sort of um, saying what exists is wrong, and, and we're comparing it to some kind of transcendent, you know, kind of um, utopia that we're trying to realize. We're not trying to realize socialism um, because that's utopia. What we're trying to do is we're trying to improve conditions in the here and now. It's just that with a Marxist analysis, um, this tells you that. Uh, there will be certain limits to how far we can go. And that once you you try to improve workers' lives beyond a certain point, once you try to empower them, once you try to remove the worst forms of exploitation and so on, you'll start to run up against class power. So his idea is that we're we're in the business of um, acting on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, and... Uh, seeking to sort of channel their immediate demands to make their lives better. But we've also got this strategic sense, which is that once we push this beyond a certain point, all hell will break loose. You know, we'll come up against the structural power of capital. And the only uh, option at that point is to either retreat or to go forward. Uh, I think that's a, that's a really useful way of thinking about things. It's a, it's a very kind of materialist way of thinking about things as, a, as opposed to a kind of abstract utopian liberal sense of you know you, you first we, we think about this uh, we design this wonderful utopia that we want to realize um and then we look at how current society doesn't measure up to it we're not doing that we're looking at what's wrong with society at the moment how might it be different uh how do the resources and capacities that we already have mean that we could actually get rid of these problems. There's no reason why people should start to death. There's no reason why people shouldn't have health care. We've got the technology, we've got know-how. We should push for these 
uh, these changes, but also be mindful of the way in which uh, these forms of oppression and exploitation are systemic. You know, uh, th- you cannot remove these problems without eventually seeking to go beyond the systemic logic that, that produces them. That's, I think that's very well said. That's a nice way to wrap it up. I, I say, I call that in my uh, American uh, colloquial uh, manner, socialism for regular ass people. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> these are, these are, you know, I mean, there's no, you know, socialist politics is, or I was going to say they don't have to be, but they ought not be. I mean, they can't be these esoteric uh, concerns no, of don't. those who spend too much time reading dusty books in academia. Yeah. They have to be the day to day needs and demands of, of the masses or, or it's nothing. Right. And I think, you know, leading us into the B side here, uh, we're going to be talking more about the, the way that, uh, Corbin and momentum, uh, and the, the movement that's catalyzed around what I'm calling the Bernie Sanders movement. I mean, of course it has a lot uh, more of a radical and militant, uh, legacy than that in the United States and elsewhere. They, they're taking up the needs and demands of regular people and they're translating that into an anti-capitalist struggle of a certain kind. But that's not to say that this, this, uh, road, is not uh, pocked uh, with with uh, you know uh, I was going to say potholes, but then that's not severe enough. I mean, I think the bridge will is likely to collapse uh, from underneath of your feet mm-hmm. if you're not careful. I mean, the, the, this is a very fraught path, and uh, we're going to lay out on the B side some of the ways in which we can look at non-reformist reforms and use the terrain of the capitalist state as a way of seeing, uh, uh, you know. Uh, as a way of seeing these dynamics so that we can try to work to develop the capacities to void those pitfalls um, in the present. So any, any parting words for the people on the A side? No, not really. No, I've just really enjoyed this discussion so far. And uh, it's, it's nice that you read my, my article. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, I, look, I, you know, I, people say, you know, Adam, you flatter your guests sometimes. Well, of course I do because I'm the one who uh, I, I select them. Who, who the hell do you think, uh, you know, phones up these people or whatever and, and says, hey, come on my show. It's me. It's me, people. Uh, I only bring on the people that I enjoy. And, and I really enjoyed this piece uh, very much. I'm going to post it on the show notes. People should read this. We, we didn't get to all of the, the the nuts and bolts, but you should read it yourself to, to see see the rest of it. We're going to carry it over to the B side. Uh, this, this discussion is uh, for all activists, um, not just dusty academics, but uh, anyone who's engaged and trying to, uh, you know, overthrow, uh, I think, uh, this barbaric system that we're, we're forced to live under uh, should, should tune in and listen in. So uh, until then, Ed, thanks so much for joining us on the Dead Planet Society. Thanks, Adam. I enjoyed it. Cheers. And that concludes this week's episode. Thanks again to Ed Rooksby for joining us. I really did enjoy the hell out of that conversation. Um, you know, his essay provided a really great grounding point for talking about a lot of the themes that this show has taken up uh, in earnest, I think, in, in 2018. You know, I promised at the beginning of the year that we would be uh, covering these topics relentlessly, concrete issues about socialist transformation, uh, the pitfalls therein, uh, strategy, all these types of things that uh, we so desperately need to revisit uh, as we mentioned in this interview, a lot of these questions have not been seriously considered since the 1970s. You know, we've been in the we've had, we've been in the neoliberal doldrums, as it were, for the past 35 plus years, and it's time to dig our way out because there are some sparks and shoots that are happening across the country, across the pond over there in the UK, and across the world, 
And, uh, you know, we need to be ready for the fire this time. And uh, Ed has given us a really great uh, way to frame that uh, question. So head on over to his website. I've linked to it in the show notes and check out his essay, Structural Reform and the Problem of Socialist Strategy Today. There will be a B-side that's going to be dropping in the next couple of days. That'll be available to my patrons, to the members of the Dead Pundit Society. Ed and I go all the way in. We're going to talk about the Syriza situation. Who was to blame? Who, uh, you know, <laughs> who should maybe stop blaming people? <laughs> uh, we lay down a diss track. No, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, Ed and I are going to put forth a... Uh, uh, an interpretation of the series, a moment that isn't often heard, I think, on the far left. Uh, we're very critical of a lot of far left actors while trying to uh, remain constructive. And uh, so, yeah, hey, agree or disagree, it's going to be a really fun conversation for you all to uh, to listen to. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button. $5 a month, you can support the New Left Agenda and get access to dozens and dozens of hours of B-sides and subscriber-only content. So support the New Left Agenda. I really appreciate it. Share this around to your social networks. Put it up on Twitter, even though that place is hell. <laughs> Share it uh, on, on, on Facebook and uh, uh, you know, on your email networks as well. I think we're covering some really important topics and, uh, you know, the left needs to get its head out of its ass and start thinking strategically and practically. All right. Until next week, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother... Oh.